In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and uh, Galen Stops sitting in New York. And um, listeners should be pleased to hear that Galen, continuing his house arrest, um, now has a companion. What have you got, Galen? Uh, I have a three-month-old golden retriever puppy with me. QRs everywhere. Well, hopefully we'll make enough <laughs> sense for the golden retriever puppy not to uh, start howling all the way through. It'll be yet the latest wildlife intervention in a, in a podcast. Um, I thought we'd kick off this week, mate, by um, just sort of having a quick chat around these EU fines that came out uh, yesterday, uh, your time, or my time. So it all rolls into one, of course. Um, it gets a confusing. One, yeah, just over 1 billion euros, uh, five banks, uh, UBS getting off with a 100% discount for being the uh, the whistleblower on the cartel's existence. Um, I guess this is quite smart on the part of regulators. They look at it and go, if a, you know, if a, if a bank or, an, or a, an institution knows that they're going to be fined hundreds of millions of dollars, the easy way to uh, avoid that fine, dob in your competitors. So I mean, what's your initial thoughts on it? On the, the, the snitching on thing? On the fines. Yeah, but doesn't that, doesn't that just encourage people to do it and then just make sure they're the first ones to snitch? <laughs> That's a very good point. I wonder if you, you thought of that one. I mean, there is that to it, isn't it? You could turn around and say, actually, well, you could, as long as you can't prove that you're the instigators of it, and I guess yeah. they, they're sitting there going like, well, look, you know, we joined these chat rooms like they were already going. Um, but that is a very interesting point. <laughs> yeah, uh, you just have a draft email ready to send if things start to get too hot. Buy one off. Back to opening up in our cynical best. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> okay. In terms I mean, of the actual activity, it's nothing new, is it? No, it, it, it's not anything new. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't know how much more there is to say in some sense. We've talked about this a lot, right? Um, I, one thing that I've always been curious about, which I've never got a good answer from, is is how they arrive at the, these totals. It, it's a very pro- precise, by the way, uh, 1.07. Yes. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and, it's in, and, and the right. fines are actually into the thousands of dollars. Yeah. It's like so $211,982,000. Yeah, I've tried asking various regulators this before, and all they ever do is say, oh, please refer to the legal agreement, or please refer to the court documents, or please refer to yeah. the, the release issue today. They won't talk, But I would love to know how they actually arrive at these numbers. Well, I um, think in I think it's South Africa, I believe it's something... It's a percentage of the earnings of the institution. And I wonder, because I mean, looking at this, I mean, Citibank was fined the most. Now, you know, as I say, I mean, we've been through these things a hundred times. I, I don't see how Citi's conduct in the key chat rooms, you know, the, 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 you know, the cartel, as we now know it wasn't called, and um, I think I was told that a few months ago by someone as well. Um, but... I don't see. I don't think City was any. Their behaviour was any more uh, wrong than the other participants. Yet they're fined more. So I would imagine this means that the fines are related to the earnings, because obviously City are one of the bigger earners uh, in so, terms of FX revenues. So, so when we posted this on social media, one of the first comments we got was, 
uh, someone commented, oh, sizable fines, but how much was the profit? So I, I don't know, as you say, was it, was it, did they somehow work out specifically how no, much they can't, bank, each bank profit? No, they can't work it, they can't work out how much they would have made from this activity, but they can, obviously, they, they do know how much they would make from their foreign exchange business on an annual basis because that would probably be declared somewhere. It used to be declared in the annual reports and I'm sure if a regulator went to a bank saying, how much did you earn in foreign exchange last year, they'll give them an answer. Although to your point, if they've got the email ready to go to dob everyone in, they're probably already giving away money and giving huge bonuses just to make sure they make less money <laughs> to reduce the fine that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it probably could be, it could well be related to that one. Um, the thing that staggered me about it was, um, how has it taken the EU this long? Yeah, the the European Union has a reputation for being a bit of a sort of you know hippopotamus in terms of its pace, um, and with all due disrespect to hippopotami, of course. Um, but it's four years since the US and the UK fined the banks for the exactly the same conduct, exactly the same chats. Um, did they really need to take this long over it? And I'm, I'm told that the um, fact that Credit Suisse didn't settle one of the original fines that is contesting it um, made it more complex for them. But, yeah, I mean, four years. So, and I think what what we should be saying, though, I mean, you said, you know, I don't think there's much new to say about this. I think there is something new to say about this, and, and the industry should be saying it loud and clear, and that is it has changed its, its structure and its ways. You know, there is <clears throat> even more electronic trading. Um, there's more electronic communications. There's surveillance systems put in place for these, um, you know, electronic communications. I mean, you know, you wrote about this three, four years ago. We've had steady rollouts of, um, of functionality. We've had firms launch and, and not be able to make it because it's that competitive. There are that, there are that many offers, offerings out there for surveillance. Um, we have done, as an industry, done a lot about it. Um, and then there's the global code, which effectively turns around and, in the age of the global code, nobody could turn around, as a lot of traders did when facing sanctions, and say, oh, I didn't know. And no manager can sanction the sharing of information the way it was done on in the chat rooms um, and say, well, what do you mean that's wrong? Because, you know, the best practice recommendations that 700-odd people have signed up to, particularly on the banking side, say you can't do it. So I think, you know, there's a usual headlines in in the usual media outlets and yes of course it is it is a big story for them but the, the message from the industry for me should be absolutely nothing new here and this is what we've done in terms of remedial work and it's quite a lot so hopefully that word will get out there we shall see on the um subjects related subjects obviously the the fines were around the fix the fixes for asset managers you can see where I'm going here. It's a nice convoluted way. You published um, a piece this week on FX allocators or allocators to FX, yeah. or rather the lack of allocators' willingness to invest in FX. A, a quote caught my eye, and it basically said, like, CTAs trading on a one- or two-month time horizon are going to have a hard time. Obviously, you can put it in the context. Was this talking in terms of um, their trading strategy? Or are they, was this in terms of um, whether they would allocate to them because of the, of the time horizon they're investing in? Because I look at it, and I'm going like, we spoke about this last week in the podcast, and I'm saying, well, CTAs are doing well. 
I believe, because they are actually taking and holding some positions. And, uh, you know, brushing out a lot of the white noise that's creating so much aggravation for everyone else. So so to give you some context, the um, the uh, <coughs> ever awkward question was put to the allocators, which is, uh, does size matter? Um, and... And, and they were kind of saying that, that they do still have interest in newer managers and smaller managers, um, but but if they if they're going to invest in those, they have to be offering something very very different. And so they were saying that that if it, it was less about the time horizon, but they were saying if you're a CTA and you're only trading kind of FX, your FX focus, you've got a time yeah. horizon of one to two months, it, it's going to be difficult. Not because there isn't a price for it, there is value in that and people will pay for it it's just that that kind of thing so many it's it's so commoditized and there's so many people doing it that the price for having that portfolio is so low that it's not really going to sustain yeah. a fund that. um, that's quite interesting actually isn't it because i mean i i would have thought given the way the world's gone over the last couple of years that um trading in foreign exchange has gotten a much shorter term basis than that I would have thought they would have been in the minority. Oh, yeah. I mean, could you know? It, I may be wrong, but it it just seems to me that yeah, I'm I'm kind of buying the argument, but not quite yet. Keep going. <laughs> um, well, they talked about this elsewhere, which was was talking about um, consistency, right? Which was yeah, they were like they were like increasingly clients are demanding consistency, and consistency tends to imply diversification. Um, so right. it, and it's not just about FX, but it, it, it's, they're saying it's difficult for us to invest in a manager that only does FX, or only does commodities, right. um, because clients generally want to have uh, a board of diversification. And then they're saying, you know, it makes sense. They don't want to, to tolerate a 15% drawdown if they can get maybe not the same, but similar returns without having to do that, then, then they definitely will. But would they uh, not get that thinking. by investing in yet another equity, longshore equity or global macro? I mean, this is the thing. I mean, they're saying like they want diversification, but by ruling out asset classes, are they narrowing the field for their diversification? Yeah, but they're not ruling out FX as an asset class. They're just ruling out FX-only managers. Right. Okay. Question stands. That would still be a diversification, wouldn't it? Or is this a question of we're going back to the old thing about they don't want to be – yeah, there aren't that many big FX managers, and they don't want to put the, mo- the money they'd be looking to put into it would be too big f- in their mind. There'd be too much of the fund. Uh, it could be that. I mean, I think, I think though. I mean, we've heard I think, was it our New York conference last year. You know, we heard a similar thing where they kind of pointed to that yeah. there has been a market decline in uh, FX, like FX only kind of currency yeah. hedge funds, and then someone at that conference put kind of the their demise of FX concept as kind of the turning point there. Yeah. Where there was a but market then, decline. Ah, <laughs> uh, but Galen, F, FX concept was a trend follower. Dead. Nothing wrong with that, Colin. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so, the, the, okay, so my problem, my problem is still, though, that, so is it not a case to argue that if a manager has got, you know, multi-strategy, they've got three or four strings to their bow, one of which is FX, so that gives diversification, they've got an FX exposure, but surely that manager's um, investment strategy 
would inevitably have some sort of link between the, the asset classes they're investing in, unless they are deliberately looking to you know, have a 10% proportion counter to their view. And that, that's what I'm struggling with. I'm thinking, well, surely they would be correlated in some way because they'd have this, they would have a house view of the world. And then that would well, be reflected. And if that house view goes wrong, then the whole, the whole thing goes wrong. That's not diversification. Of but I always thought, I always thought of, of part of the whole point of CTAs to, was to, I mean, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, was to trade a bunch across a bunch of different asset classes so that they yeah. can dynamically reallocate as things move so they can A, catch trends, but B, also move out of the way when things are, are coming. If you're just yeah. FX only, I guess you can move between currencies if, if, if you know, there's, you know, markets are moving against you, but it just limits your, limits your world a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I get that. I guess my point is I'm, I'm not quite sure why an allocator wouldn't look at it and go, okay, well, I want diversification. Why don't I actually increase my diversification by getting four different view, house views into my portfolio? You know, one specialist FX, one specialist commodities, one specialist equities, and one specialist fixed, fixed income. Other asset classes are available, of course. Um, I just, yeah, I, I sort of look at it that way. I think, well, you're putting all your eggs in one basket to say in one house view, which in this world, unfortunately, where people are less willing to take on risk, we do end up coagulating around a, a house view. You, know, you look at the banks. Um, traders are not allowed in many cases to express a view that differs from the, the house view um, developed by the research and strategy team. And I find the whole thing a bit strange because I think it just it, it, it means you, you, you're hamstrung as, as, a, as a trading shop. But why would I go and pay? Why would I go and pay five different managers to trade five different asset classes? And then yeah. I've got to find five people who are good in every single one, where I could just yeah. find one manager, right? And remember, these are CTAs. These these are quantitative strategies, right? I could just find one manager who has a really really good strategy and trades a bunch of different asset classes. I'm paying yeah. a fifth less fees. Well, I've only got to find one person with a great strategy instead of five people with a great strategy. Yeah. So and, and effectively, fair, you, you, your, your diversification is not in, in terms of firms or view, worldview. It's just in terms of the strategies around one or two firms. Potentially, yeah. And, and to be fair, some of the allocators uh, on, the, on the session were saying that they, they consider FX um, attractive as an asset class and as a sandbox to play in. Um, yeah. I know one of them even even highlighted the, um, the 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 yen move at the start of the year as an example of like there are yeah, opportunities yeah. to be to capture moves there. We like it as an asset class, um, but they just said it's, and they said it's not difficult. Like it's not impossible. You know, if there is something really special out there that's just FX, they would they would invest and allocate to it. It's mm. just broadly speaking, it's harder to be one of those funds now, especially if you're smaller. Yes, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, I do have a problem. I mean, you know, how are we going to? How is this industry going to evolve? How is it going to um, be healthy long term if we end up with um, no pipeline of younger managers coming through? Um, I think there's some very forward-thinking fund managers out there that seed smaller funds with their own money. Um, people they like, and they can and they can seed and incubate managers that way. But I do think this push for size and everything's got to be scaled um, does risk the 
um, the long-term health of the hedge fund CTA industry, um, you know, which frankly is not having a great time anyway. Although it did the last couple of months, I grant you. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's been it's been a, it's been an up and down couple of years for them, as it normally is. Um, yeah, I, I just think in a world of correlations, and we live in a world of correlations. I find it really interesting that um, people's idea of diversification is keeping it within one firm, where correlations, I think, would naturally build. But then again, their so, so FX allocators pay the shed load of money, and I'm not. So, so this was, I actually had a kind of a vaguely similar conversation, uh, actually this week. So, so this week in New York, we, there was the consensus conference, which is like one of the big, yeah. uh, blockchain, blockchain Bitcoin events, uh, in the US. And so I, I, um, I had lunch with a, a hedge fund manager and his background is very much traditional finance. Like he worked at endowment firms and pension funds, et cetera, before he, he yeah. ran his current, uh, fund. And, um, you know, we were talking about it, and 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 kind of the the size issue. And I was, you know, saying that I I'd, I'd heard, you know, one of the big issues was simply when it came to so these big funds investing in crypto, it's just too small of a market to move the needle for them. Like, mm-hmm. like if you're a crypto hedge fund, like how much money can I actually allocate to a crypto hedge fund, right? Because it, it is still the market yep. cap, relatively speaking, to these huge funds is so small that any return I'd get, even if it was outsized. It's not going to be big enough to move the needle for me right now. And, and he was saying to me, he was like, honestly, when I go out and speak to people, he's like, that is the biggest barrier right now to getting investment. He was like, he yeah. was like, you go to all these conferences and they'll tell you about, oh, we need we need better custody solutions and the infrastructure isn't quite there. And I don't know how I'm going to settle all this stuff. And he was like, trust me, I've worked in these funds. If if the opportunity is really there. And you don't want to miss out. Like you, you find solutions, creative workarounds, and you sit down with legal and whoever, and you find a way to make it all, you know, kosher. Um, but he was saying just the, the the size, the market is the biggest thing still holding it back from getting that kind of that type of institutional money. It's a chicken and egg, though, isn't it? Because you know. You, you could argue really that without getting the institutional money, then um, how's it going to grow? Because you know, there is a finite limit to retail. And actually, something that's, something that's happened fairly quietly, I have to say. I mean, the usual sort of you know, Bitcoin um, fan, fan club um, have not been active over social media talking about this move above 8,000. Know, we have had a, a, a significant move up in crypto. Um, and no one's really talking about it. But the fact is, though, you know, how are we going to get to the um, the next stage if you can't? If you, someone's got to take the plunge, because I, I mean, I, I may be wrong, but can retail grow this to the level where these institutional players would be comfortable? I can't see it. It strikes me that we need one or two of them to come through the door, and then another three hundred will try and get through immediately afterwards. Absolutely not. But but now that you've mentioned retail. I have to tell you, I overheard the best conversation about Bitcoin in a restaurant on Monday night. <laughs> I completely forgot about it. It is great stuff. So I was just like, I was out with a couple of friends on Monday night, a nice Italian place in Manhattan. And, and you know, when you like, you hear something and it, and it, it's something that you work around. So your kind of ears yeah. prick up and you can't help but listening. So my friends were talking. I was completely disengaged from their conversation because I was fully listening to these four guys to my right, who, 
who in between uh, in between talking about how strong the cocaine they were going to the toilet to take every now and again was, um, <laughs> was talking about their Bitcoin investments. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. We're talking about their Bitcoin investments. <laughs> And, and one of them was saying, like, um, yeah, but I just I don't understand enough about it. I don't understand what it is. Uh, the response was the other one was, you don't need to un- – what are you talking about? You don't need to understand it. There's, there's a finite amount of it. Do you understand? There's a finite amount. So once it runs out, it's just going to keep going up. So you might as well just throw 20 grand in it now, and eventually it will just keep going up on enough timeline. It's like, oh, all right. <laughs> I was like, I was like, cause I, I thought at this point, like all the retail juice had kind of been squeezed. It turns yeah. out I was very, very wrong. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> did, did any of them understand that by the time the Bitcoin runs out, they'll be pushing up daisies and would have been for probably half a century? <laughs> no, no, they absolutely, absolutely did not know. And they, and they clearly had um, no idea around the uh, idea that actually, you know, one cryptocurrency could very easily be replaced by another. It's it's a very replicable design, isn't it? Um, they absolutely let them talk. I I don't believe that any of them had read. I would say one full article on Bitcoin. I would say like maybe one no. of them had read like two headlines, and that's it. Um, and, and I really thought we were past that like dumb money speculation part, but. Uh, maybe not. Although I will say is, um, I think we, we, you and I have talked about this before, but the, the actual consensus event has changed a lot in recent years, which is, yeah. you know, it's gone from, you know, being kind of more, I mean, it's still very crypto heavy, but it used to be a lot of like, you know, jeans and t-shirts, et cetera. It, it's just, the whole thing is a lot more professional now, just in terms of who's thing. I think the whole... That's middle-aged, whole, middle-aged men in jeans and t-shirt now. Yeah, but, but just like, you know, Bitcoin originally had this whole cyberpunk rock thing, or, or, yeah. or there were elements of that that people were pushing, which personally I always found a bit cringeworthy. But, um, I mean, that is dead and gone now uh, for the vast majority of them. Um, the other thing I thought, just a few kind of takeaways from from kind of in and around the conference. I didn't have that much time to, to spend there, um, which is a lot of the talk from kind of the more serious people or it sounds rude, but I, but the, the people I know who have more traditional finance backgrounds who are involved in the space now, um, exactly what we talked about before when we talked about the move away from like cryptocurrency to digital assets. And they're all yeah. talking about their different portfolio, of different types of digital assets and how they see it evolving. For example, that the, the hedge fund manager I went to lunch with, he was saying that right now his portfolio is only 5%, um, uh, security tokens, uh, but he expects that. I mean, he's a bit vague on the timeline, but he was saying ultimately, I think that's where it's going. It's going to be 95% uh, security token offerings, and you know, cryptocurrencies will be the kind of the FX part of this universe. The STOs will be like the equity part of this universe, and so so he was kind of mapping this whole kind of crypto digital version of in some ways, traditional finance markets. And that kind of similar theme was something I heard quite a lot. Mm. So the we're going to revolutionize the world. We're going to change everything. We are the ultimate disruptor. <clears throat> what I'm hearing is we're just making the existing world a bit more efficient. Oh, yeah, completely. So there was one, yeah. there was, I mean, there was one panel on security tokens <laughs> because I went to it to, to learn a little bit more. 
And I mean, one of the people on the panel who's, who came across as being pretty sharp basically said, yeah, this is a really like, this is good. I think it's going to take off, but this will definitely be the most boring part of crypto because it's just like, as you say, it's, they were like, it's just, it's far more efficient and eventually market will find efficiency. So it will head this way, but it's nothing to get excited about. Hmm. So clearly, I think they've made enough money in crypto not to worry about it. I mean, speaking of making money in crypto, you published an interesting piece on a report that came out last week um, around who's making the money, and it was the quants. Yeah. I wish I suppose uh, it should be really, shouldn't it? If you think in a, in a fully digital world, you you would hope that the quants would make more money. I mean, I mean, it certainly wasn't the the other crypto funds. I mean, I mean, the thing to me that was interesting about that was was just the disparity, right? Yeah, which was so. So, I mean, the the report. So the report made a case that actually, Bitcoin. So okay, let me start at the beginning. So the, the median return for crypto hedge funds last year was minus forty six percent, which is a pretty hefty minus. Right now, now the report yeah. actually tried tried to make a case that because a lot of them use Bitcoin as their benchmark, which was down 72%, these funds had actually outperformed. Yeah. Okay, good spin. <laughs> good spin. Good spin. <laughs> I know. I, well, no, I but to be fair, no, hang on though, mate, because, but that's actually a serious point because, and you know, just to quickly loop back to our, our thing before, investors pay attention to this stuff. You know, I've always said the thing, my problem with benchmarking is if you've got 100 asset managers that are all index trackers, stand on the edge of a cliff. When the 51st one jumps over the edge of the cliff, the other 49 have got to go with him. Because all of a sudden, they'll be, you know, they'll, they'll be tracking error. They, they won't, they'll be out or underperforming the market. Um, that actually, they would look at it, some investors would look at that, or allocators would look at that and go, hmm, interesting, there's something there. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I just thought that was hilarious that they were like, yeah, I oh, know, it's crazy. Hedge funds lost 46%, but actually, I'm looking yeah. at this as a win. Yeah, <laughs> because I outperformed my benchmark. <laughs> my benchmark was minus seventy-two percent. What's the problem? You lost three quarters of your money. Come on, it's great news. You only lost half your money. <laughs> so, so breaking that down a bit further, and the median return of of funds using fundamental strategies was minus fifty-three percent, and uh, funds employing discretionary strategies had an average return of minus sixty-three percent. Now, against this horror show backdrop, quants, quant crypto funds returned um, 8%, plus 8%, I should hasten to add, um, which is just, you know, so far to the other extreme. And while the the other hedge funds, uh, they track Bitcoin very closely in terms of correlation, the the quants, their the coefficient was completely the other way. Minus, uh, was it minus two something? It was minus two point three three Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and and there's a graph in the article we put, which is is very stark and and showing how the prices went. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I, I would I would say um, in many ways it doesn't surprise me because what you're talking about is you're talking about um, traders who are. I mean, some of these funds are very, very immature in terms of yeah. their, you know, how long they've been formed, um, and even the people actually, you know, running the funds are fairly new to to markets in some cases. Um, 
But that doesn't surprise me because a quant fund is driven only by signals. And there were 150 signals probably a day, a week last year that Bitcoin was going down. And yet you find that the human traders are going to sit and go like, no, I'll buy this dip. I'll buy this dip. I'll buy this dip. Um, and okay, now I'll puke at the bottom. That, that's just a, that's the psychology of markets. And it's, that's, to me, is an interesting one because that turns around and says there were traders in the crypto world, and I think this is a this is a feature of the crypto world still, and it's always going to be so as long as it's dominated by retail. But the there are a lot of the trading in the crypto world is highly emotional, and emotion is the killer of most good traders. You know, you can well, sorry, if you're emotional, you're unlikely to be a good trader because you just get married to positions. And I think that highlights that. The quants, who have no say over this thing whatsoever, feed the data in and it spits out the trade. Logic. Just sell it. Just sell the thing short. And, and they've done really well. In some ways, I would argue, you could say they've maybe underperformed. But then were they operating for the full year? That's the other thing. You know, a lot of these funds would have grown up in the last latter part of the year, wouldn't, it? wouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, the other interesting so, thing about the report is, there was, there was interesting data on the, the non-investment side. Um, and basically, all this data showed, showed how different crypto funds still are to traditional hedge funds. So, you know, yeah. for example, um, about half of them custody their own assets, whereas traditional hedge funds obviously do not generally custody their own assets. Um, 75% of crypto hedge funds still don't have an independent uh, board of directors, as is common. Um, only 7% use third-party research. 93% use just, I assume, their own. Um, so there are all these... So I think and, you heard their research in the restaurant the other night. <laughs> yeah. That's why they're minus 72%. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, 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 then, but at each stage of this report, it kind of does, uh, oh, but we expect, you know, we expect solutions to come online soon. And, oh... They don't have independent board directors because there aren't enough people with experience in this um, in this field yet, and you know, oh, there's just not enough third-party researchers yet. So I mean, the, the they don't really back up their assertion every time that it's going to move toward more kind of traditional hedge fund governance and structure. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily, I don't think they're necessarily wrong in asserting that. Um, I think I think the report's just like a little bit blasé in saying. Oh yeah, but it will come. But oh yeah, we're on the way there, and oh, people will be offering solutions for this soon. Mm. Um, but how long what is the about... The only thing I would say is that the crypto industry is actually quite good at delivering solutions in reasonable time compared to some other industries. I would suggest. Oh, completely. Um, and then, like I said, I think they're a bit blasé in the report, but I don't necessarily think they're wrong. Um, the other no. interesting thing was they do make a point though of saying. Um, take this all with a, a grain of salt, they do make a point of saying at the beginning that all of this data was self-reported by each fund and has not been verified by an independent fund administrator or third party. And that was actually something that came up a lot at the consensus event, which was a lot of the, a lot of the data, a lot of the information in and around this industry is not verified. Like a lot of the people operating here do not have um, an independent third party looking over their shoulder to verify, you know, who's holding what funds. Um, we, we joked before and we talked about the, um, the, 
the the keys, private keys that got lost and the whole yes. um, conspiracy theory around that, right? But it, but it kind of, we joked about it, but it, it is a serious point, and this is something that I've heard a lot, which is that there is no kind of third-party audit mechanism, really, for, like, almost all of this industry. Yeah. I mean, without without some sort of safety net, to go back to your earlier point, I cannot see how true institutional money will ever come into this market unless the, the infrastructure is there for them to be able to monitor their funds. Yeah, completely. And, I mean, mm. to my mind as well, when you think about the crypto market, there is something of an irony that the whole system was designed to get rid of third-party, you know, independent third parties sitting between transactions. Yes. Um, but the industry still needs independent third parties to <laughs> sit on top of the people transacting and make sure that they're actually doing it correctly and holding what they say they are, et cetera, et cetera. They're changing the world, mate. They've told us. They're changing the world. This is radically different. They're doing something no one's ever done before, apart from the fact they're not. <laughs> Yes, there we go. Um, okay, well, that's going to be it for this week. Um, I did have one more thing I wanted to quiz you on, but that'll keep along with you till next Friday. Um, so oh, thanks for listening. Colin, curious, Colin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Not that much, mate. There's probably a question on puppy, care, puppy health care. Um, a little bit disappointed we weren't interrupted by it, to be fair. I think you should have gone and poked it at least once, but there you go. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening on that note of animal cruelty. <laughs> It's going to get me in trouble. Um, thanks for listening. We will be back next week, and uh, we'll speak to you then.